Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about the roots of communism, or perhaps more accurately, Marxism, which if you listen to the show, you'd know is a name that's extremely unfair to Friedrich Engels. We spent time with the Industrial Revolution, the Communist Manifesto, and the revolutions of 1848 that shook Europe. Today, we're going to pivot from the theory of communism into the practical, beginning with the Paris Commune and culminating with the Cold War. Let's begin. All right, we're here on HI101 with Ethan Blesky. Hello. And we've been talking about communism. Yes, we have. Oh, communism. It's, it's, it's such a good topic in terms of how radicalized it's going to become in the 20th century just based on counter-propaganda. Yeah. That I'm happy to be doing this one if only for the reason that we get to give it a more fa- fair and balanced approach. <laughs> uh, because I think we're a little bit away. I, I mean, at least like our age yeah are are far more willing to give it a an even approach than than uh maybe we would have been able to 30 years ago mm-hmm. when yeah good good luck saying a good thing about communism see how that gets or see how far that gets you <laughs> uh, <laughs> the tensions are gonna rise but for now it's it's mostly been a theoretical thing that a couple of weirdos have been working on in a in a library in london yeah and uh with you know with the odd worker strike coming up that is validating their ideas kind of <laughs> they think they hope they hope until we get to 1870 in 1870 there was a uh, a war between uh france and prussia it's mm-hmm. known as the franco-prussian war yep reasons are obvious france lost this war quite badly <laughs> like very like pretty like really badly yeah like it wasn't even uh this was part of the the whole you know, German unification yeah. kind of roadmap. The uh, leader, Bismarck, was a really interesting guy. Brutal, but but brilliant. And there was a there was a series of a few wars leading up to the German unification. Three wars, specifically. And, and the one with France was the Third War. And he basically declared Germany a, a united country in the Palace of Versailles at the end of this, this war. It's, it was just like... It was the very first Treaty of Versailles, correct? Oh, good question. There have been several treaties of Versailles. Yeah, that's that's why I ask. Because I'm not sure if it's the first one or not. I know it was one of the first, like, really big ones. It is the reason that the Treaty of Versailles 1919 was signed in Versailles. Yeah, because they were looking back to 1871 and the loss of this war. Yeah, and France was going, "Well, you did this to us then. We're doing this to you now." Yeah, which explains a little bit of some of the 
punitive nature of the 1919 Treaty of Versailles. What? Yep. Yeah. Uh-oh. I don't know. Things like that are good to know, though. It's, yeah. it's important to understand the context of some of the more irrational moves in history that have, you know, far-reaching consequences. And you kind of yeah. go, uh, you kind of look at it and go, Wait, why would anyone do that, though? Well, no, be- because they had a very petty and flawed and human reason for it, but they had mm-hmm. a reason. Yeah. It was a, it was a pretty logical one. Yeah. Bad, but logical. <laughs> um, but anyways, this war... It, it was lost fairly decisively while it was still fairly far from from Paris. Napoleon III actually was, was defeated in a, a huge battle. And it was basically the end of the Second French Empire. France keeps going back and forth between empires and republics. They've had like the... six revolutions by now. Yeah, I, I mean, they, they keep switching by modern day. political systems. France has always been very experimental with its politics. <laughs> um yeah they 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 had given another french empire a go didn't work out so well so now they're gonna go for a third republic yay yay good Um, for you guys the 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 prussians are pushing towards paris the third french republic is established they it puts a guy named uh tier in uh in control but the funny thing about paris at this point in time is that you know they're thrown into complete disarray because the government has just been overthrown Um, again the uh Napoleon III's wife, the Empress, uh, flees the city. Okay. Um, because she knows that the Germans are coming to put it under, under siege. Yeah. Uh, it's being reset as a as a republic. Mm-hmm. Complete chaos within the walls of the city, and this is all happening within the same or similar co- political climate to, you know, revolutions just over twenty years before, where there's a lot of unrest among the working classes in terms of their working conditions in terms of their economic position things like that yeah losing a war and having the government flee the capital is kind of you know freshly tilled soil for revolutionary movements (laughs) they're they're drawn to it like like uh moths to flame yeah paris between or or france between the revolution and uh well this incident uh maintained something called the national guard which was okay. kind of like an army reserve. Yep. It was a combination of uh, militia and kind of like a, a draft movement where there was a, a an official professional army and then there was uh, the National Guard, which was a separate arm, which was sometimes used for police work rather than uh, military service, which was... So it was very similar to the U.S.'s National Guard. Yes, except they were far less professional. In okay. general, the National Guard was a bunch of... Bullies. Uh, uh, Bullies with clubs. I mean, sometimes, yes. They, they were, let's put it this way. They were drawn from uh, the lower classes while the army tended to be drawn from higher classes. Oh, okay. And so, so they often aligned a little bit better with the, the masses in terms of political... Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, rather than uh, the, the army who generally aligned with whoever was ruling at that point in time, which is, you know, kind of one of the definitions of having a government in power is the, the army going along with you. Yeah. The National Guard did things like refuse to wear uniforms or were notoriously bad for taking orders without talking them over first. And like really just like all the things that you don't want an army to be. And yet I, I kind of like them. Yeah, you're probably going to feel that way about a bunch of the agitators that we talk about. <laughs> because, you know, a lot of the times they're fighting against a, a system that is, is well, 
very oppressive. Bad enough that somebody wants to fight against it. Yeah, let's put it that, that way. Part of the Marxist theory of, of history is is something, basically, uh, his, history is born out of conflict between classes. We talked about that. But they have this theory that there is something called the thesis, which is the generally established order. Yeah. There's the antithesis, which is the uh, the opposition to that order. Okay. You know, the counter to it, if you will. Yeah. And that inevitably they will conflict. And what results from it is called the synthesis. synthesis which is neither the thesis nor the antithesis, but a combination yeah. of the best parts of both, ideally. Okay. But the synthesis becomes the new thesis, and there will be eventually a new antithesis. Yes. In this case, I mean, what our world is, is, like, if you if you ascribe to this model, is several, uh, like, is a minimum one, more like several uh, removals of this process from the thesis that that established order is putting forward. So, yeah. of course there are going to be uh, aspects of the established order, but also of the agitators that we find to be very comfortable, very yes. uh, familiar. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, that's, you know, there there are plenty of people who don't ascribe to that model of um, historical progression, but sometimes models like this can be useful for uh, explaining certain phenomenon. Yeah. And when we're talking about class conflict anyways... It makes some sense to use a Marxist model of class yeah, conflict yeah, yeah. to talk about it. Okay. Especially yeah. when we're talking about Marxism. Yeah. It, it, it helps the the whole structure kind of fit together a little bit better. <laughs> it's neat. It's neat. That's a great way of putting it. I like that. <laughs> uh, the city of Paris goes under sort of martial law as soon as the uh, the Third Republic is, is established, right? Okay. There's a general, uh, Louis-Jules Trochu, that, uh, that comes into command. But the thing is that... The majority of the prof- the professional army was at that battle that they just lost. Yeah. Paris has about 50,000 members of the army. It's got about 300,000 members of the National Guard. Yep. At this point in time, there are a lot of revolutionaries in France. Okay. We're going to try and kind of keep this story a little bit focused, but we're going to look at uh, uh, a guy named uh, Louis-Auguste Blanqui, who was a, a radical revolutionary who believed in the vanguard theory. Okay. So... Interestingly enough, Blanqui is actually going to spend this entire story in jail elsewhere in France. Okay. But he has followers. Yeah. Blanqui had actually wrote a guide to radical revolution in which he sort of put forward um, uh, a theory of using 10-person cells to agitate. Okay. Because none of them, if a cell, if a cell is broken... Well, it's for the exact same reason anyone uses cells these days. Yeah. If a cell is broken, it doesn't compromise the entire movement. The cell is big enough to be effective on its own. Yep. Uh, you have uh, limited contact between the cells in order to make sure that none of them comp- compromise each other. Mm-hmm. But they work towards a similar goal to make sure that eventually everything is going to spread. Yeah. Rather than actually like actively directly taking control. Okay. Because they're agitators. They're vanguards. They're yep. not usurpers. Yeah. So what they call... Uh, Blanquists in in English, but um, followers of Blanqui. Yeah, the Blanquists would work in these ten person cells, agitating in Paris. Yeah, well, they had a lot of friends in the National Guard, like a lot of friends. The National Guard was very sympathetic to them because remember, again, coming from yep. the working class, a lot of the people that uh, were in the National Guard were the exact people that the Blanquists were working to support, defend, protect, represent however you want to characterize yeah, yeah, yeah. their rather violent actions. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so Paris comes under siege by the German army okay. in September. And the climate within Paris, 
becomes very volatile throughout the siege for fairly obvious reasons, mm-hmm. especially because there's technically a power vacuum there. It's not even as though they're kind of cooped up with the leadership there who's giving them, you know, any sort of sense of order, uh, yeah. of resolve, anything like that. I mean, they have a, a provisional military government in place of a Republican uh, system yeah. telling them what to do. It's important to remember that Paris is very different than the rest of France when you're talking about just about anything. Okay. Like, it's it's almost its own little world. As, as cohesive as... Uh, as France seems to be, yeah. Paris is often doing its own separate thing from the rest of France. Um, okay. Yeah, it's, it's just this odd political phenomenon there. Within Paris, you've got this kind of back and forth for who's actually running the city right now. Because, I mean, officially it's General Trochu, right? Yeah. But he doesn't have the men to actually hold it down, especially if anyone disagrees with him. Yeah. And by the end of October, there are like revolts within Paris trying to convince the leadership that they should be electing a commune. Okay. Like they, they, want, uh, they want to set up uh, Paris as a commune. Okay. And, you know, they're quite violent you know, for, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to beat around the bush. They are. Yeah. There, there are fights. There are skirmishes breaking out throughout the, the city. I mean, not every member of the, Ma- the National Guard wants this not every member of the national guard is agitating for it yeah but there are a lot of them but there's enough yep that it they're all arms yeah they've all had some sort of minimal training (laughs) some of them wear their their uniforms sometimes (laughs) but i mean if you're gonna fight an armed insurrection and you're the army you'd probably prefer just like a general rabble of citizens over your trained reserve yeah you know what I mean? Like this yeah, is yeah. this is not your normal agitation within a city. So mm-hmm. they're worried about it, and rightfully so. The uh, the National Guard also starts at this point in time requesting the right to elect their own officers. Oh, which is just not how armies work. Yeah, it's how they want theirs to work. Again, okay. you're seeing you're seeing um, these themes of this mid nineteenth century move towards not only socialism but enfranchisement, right? Yeah. They figure that's probably the best way to do this is is let us vote on it. Why couldn't this be a democracy? Okay. I mean, the answer is because the army works better as a meritocracy, but yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't tell this guy <laughs> personally. No. Um, I feel like he wouldn't take it that well. So, I mean, the government is basically held hostage. The city is under double siege. Um, everything really sucks. Until January, finally, there's an armistice signed with the, the Germans, January 26th, because okay. the, the leadership within the city, what there is of it anyways, realizes that there's no way they can hold off the Germans at this point. Plus, they're under immense pressure from the National Guard, yeah, who in turn are under immense pressure from the Blanquists. Yeah. So basically, the terms of the armistice is that the city's not to be occupied by Germans. Okay. Fair. France is going to pay uh, reparations. Okay. Okay. Well, that's a thing that happens in wars. All right. Yeah. All the regulars, so all the the members of the actual army, uh, have to give up their arms, but won't go to jail. Okay. Okay. Reasonable. Uh, The National Guardsmen get to keep their arms for policing reasons. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Definitely that. Yeah. So this is the point when uh, Adolf Thiers is uh, elected head of parliament, um, you know, head of the, the new Third Republic. Yeah. And all these people in Paris are going like, yeah, I don't, I don't think so, man. Okay, if you want to call yourself leader, fine, but, but nah. 
Did you hear that thing about how we get to keep our guns? Yeah. There's all this like weird tension between like the the New Republic and the National Guardsmen. Yeah. There's this whole issue over these like really old cannons that actually don't even work all that well anymore. <laughs> and like who gets them and like yeah. what gets to happen with them because there was this there was a system that happened during war times which pieces of artillery would be paid for like by subscription. Like basically like uh citizens would like somewhat like they would sponsor uh pieces of artillery for lack of a better word okay kind of yeah i I mean yeah it's this it's this whole thing where what ended up happening is the uh the the blankwists were arguing that these cannons belong to the people because they're the ones paid for it okay rather directly like not even like through this like weird like roundabout like you know taxes go to the military military requisitions arms but like they had been asked to pay directly for these pieces okay in wartime which isn't an unreasonable thing to ask necessarily yeah well i mean it's no different than asking people to buy bonds in wartime right yeah yeah. it's 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 a it's a way of uh raising money quickly and efficiently uh and what's more having it go directly to the war effort so you know is what it is but the black i think that's a a hilarious system i I love it well yeah it's i like i like to think that they got like newsletters on how many (laughs) How many, like a picture of their cannon. How many units that their cannon took out. <laughs> how it's doing month to month. It's got a little engraving on it. Monsieur Lefebvre, we regret to inform you <laughs> that your cannon did not make it through the Battle of Alsace. <laughs> Misfired. He was, a, he was a good cannon. <laughs> and well loved by his entire unit. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't know. Anyways, like, it, it's just, like, weird stuff like that kept cropping yeah, yeah, up. Yeah. And the Blankwists were pushing as hard as possible to agitate. Because, again, they are vanguards. Yeah. They're, they're, seeing, this, this, uh, they're seeing this new government as being weak, mm-hmm. uh, unestablished. Uh, they're seeing this as an opportunity. Finally, full-on armed revolt against the Republic broke out in March. Uh, Tears evacuates to Versailles, which isn't that far away from paris i mean yeah. I, I mean today it's a suburb of paris basically it's yes yeah. like 17 kilometers from city center okay a very rich one but you know still kind of a part of the greater metropolitan area the national guard takes control of the city and i mean immediately tears begins putting together an armed force to take back the city because he's the leader of the parliament yeah that's He's got an armed revolt on his hands. What's he supposed to do? It's Yeah, it's kind of his job. It's kind of his job. That's what he was elected for. Yeah. The National Guard finds out that they're building up forces. They know that they don't have enough army regulars to take Paris yet. Yeah. And so they decide to send a, a preemptive strike force against Versailles. Oh. Oh, good. Here's the thing. They had a lot less in numbers. They're not as good at being soldiers. Yeah. They also had bad intel on how well fortified the troops were uh, at Versailles. Okay. And besides that, there had been uh, incidents while they were kind of taking the city during this armed revolt yeah. where soldiers had refused to fire on National Guardsmen. Oh. And so they believed, they honestly believed that the army would not fire on them and they'd be able to take, or, or not the entirety of the army anyways. Yeah the vast majority of the army would spare them and they'd be able to take the government, hold it hostage and thereby secure their place as quote unquote legitimate government within Paris. Yeah. Um, no, but you know, that, that was, that was the aim anyways. So they march on Versailles and it turns out that yes, they will shoot at them. <laughs> uh, 
Also, they have artillery pieces set up. Yeah. Also, they're, you know, locked down, which the National Guardsmen weren't expecting. Like, they yeah. didn't even really bring provisions with them. They just kind of went. They just kind of went to Versailles. It's a National Guard. Like, yeah. it's not, again, like, as as many people as they had, they're not a professional force. They've yeah. had training. It's still not a real army. Yeah. They, they got hammered. At this point, the government within Paris starts falling apart. Like, which is like five days after they took power. When they started out, they had all these like really great aspirations, which is really kind of what we want to talk about in terms of communism. Like, what did these people, like, what did they want? Yeah. What were they trying to accomplish here? Things like universal suffrage. They were looking to get the vote to women. Oh, okay. Uh, they were looking to set up an eight-hour workday. They okay. were looking to put in uh, safety reforms for workers. There was some nationalization of factories and things like that. There was appropriation of church property. Like actual property of churches or uh, property that the church owned throughout the city that wasn't necessarily a physical church? Both. One of the tenets of uh, communism is that, well, it's, it's, it's an atheistic philosophy. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, it believes that religion is one of the tools that the people in power use to placate the those that they oppress the opiate of the masses correct that's the that's the famous line um is that so, actually a marxist line or is that one from i believe that one's from das capital okay uh i i'll double check though and stick it in the notes oh i i just wasn't sure if it was actually from marx and I am, uh Engels or if it was from like the russian revolutions i'm like 95 percent sure that that was a marx line okay Again, I'll I'll check it and we'll stick it in the notes. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but I'm I'm fairly certain it's just which which work it's from. I'm not entirely sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they had no qualms about uh, you know taking over churches and redistributing wealth from them. Okay, they went through and made sure that what they would call petty laborers, so like carpenters, people like that who are who are I guess you could call entrepreneurs. Okay, would be a, would be a good way of putting this. Mm-hmm. Made sure that they got their tools of the trade back from during the siege where a lot of people were forced to say, for example, pawn the tools of their trade to just get by. So they made sure that everyone got their, their own personal means of production back. Okay. Um, They were looking to put into place uh, things like calendar reforms back into like the, that metric time that they had originally tried to do during the the French revolution. Yeah. They wanted to put that in place. Uh, So like they had a lot of really big goals. Mm Mm-hmm. They also weren't around for that long. Yeah. So, because I mean, like a week into them being in power, they try this big power move against Versailles and fail. Mm -hmm. And so the the question is, what's next? Which is a reasonable question. Mm -hmm. And there was a rift between those who believe that that they should prioritize defense. Okay. Which is a very reasonable thing to consider. Yes. (laughs) And those who believed it was important to prioritize social progress, which is the whole point of being a commune in the first place. Yeah. The redistribution of wealth, the spreading of the system to uh, places near to Paris to kind of keep the ball of the revolution rolling. Because again, remember Vanguard theory? Yeah. It doesn't stop. Yeah. The the socialist revolution is not supposed to just stop, especially at like one city. Yeah. It's supposed to spread. It's supposed to, you know, catch like wildfire. and Yes. And, and and uh, inspire those around them. So there's those two factions, those that they're going, we have a we have a political, economic, class-based mission 
that we need to fulfill. We have a responsibility towards this. And there are those that are going, there is an army right over there. Let's worry <laughs> about that. Yeah. Uh, and they really couldn't agree. Like it, it really slowed them down in terms of the their ability to pass policy. Yeah. They passed a lot considering they were in power for two months. But yeah, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that they passed was, I, I, I hate saying symbolic because I, I don't want to make it sound like the symbols that, that that they put in place were unimportant or meaningless. Okay. Um, the fact that they were trying to pass legislation uh, moving towards these these progressively social or these progressive social uh, ideas yeah. is, is absolutely meaningful. Mm-hmm. And they do seem to have had like a true commitment to these ideals. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, two months isn't, that long to be idealistic about something no i've said two months now a couple of times so that lets you know how long this actually lasts (laughs) sorry you started Um, to say they you mentioned all of that did they uh have ideas about like universal health care stuff like that yeah Uh, Uh, universal education was actually a a major theme here socialization of um like firefighting forces uh i have not read anything about firefighters I, I would assume so. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, healthcare, education, aid for the unemployed, all of that is being put in place. Just, I don't see why they would have socialized okay. uh, firefighting force as well. Yeah. Um, that would that would fall under the umbrella of general socialized or, or nationalized uh, yeah. uh, services. Yeah. That's another place where things kind of relate back to Marxism a little bit, where he said that it's okay to like kind of nationalize businesses to start, but that's yeah. not where it should end. Yeah. Right. Like, so you can nationalize, uh, you know, government own a, a, a steel mill, for example. Yeah. But that's not where it should stop. That's an OK way to begin the process. But ownership of that should be turned over from the government to the people. Yeah. Which I know is kind of a sticky distinction because, yeah. I mean, theoretically, the government should represent the people and administrate on behalf of the people and all of that. But what he's saying is that, you know, currently... The profits from, like, if you nationalize something, the profits go from that business to the government who then decides what to do with that money. Yeah. That wealth should go directly to the people without the intermediary of the government. Hmm. However, these people didn't have time to get to that point. They were still working under a much more of like a nationalization model. Yeah. Uh, Again, these things don't happen just overnight. But that's why the vanguards are here to get the ball rolling. Yeah. Yeah, there's something called the Bloody Week beginning May 21st. Uh, okay. It's fairly self-explanatory. Yeah. The army came. There was no more commune after that. Okay. <laughs> a lot of a lot of people died. Fighting was fierce on both sides. Yeah. They they did not go peacefully. But yeah, over uh, by by the end of May, there was no more Paris commune. The leaders were all uh, either executed or imprisoned. Yeah. Most of them were actually killed through the fighting. Blanqui, who had actually been uh, nominated president of the commune, had been in jail the entire time, so. (laughs) Was the jail not in Paris? No. Okay. It was elsewhere in France. That makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) I tried to get him. Bring Um, him back home. And that was kind of the end of of the commune proper, because, I mean, there's, there's really no further that you can go with that. The problem with the revolution... You know, the difference between a rebellion and a revolution is whether, like, how long you can hang on to it, right? <laughs> uh, they, they never really managed to gain political legitimacy outside of Paris proper. Yeah. And even then, their legitimacy within Paris was questionable at best. Yeah. They were unable to really 
defend it militarily, which as I as I mentioned earlier is kind of the hallmark of a of a government in power. Yeah. You know, is the ability to defend itself. There were other cities in Paris or yeah, other cities in Paris. There are other cities in France that uh tried communes around the same time. Okay. Paris was by far the most successful and the most noteworthy. But, Which for two months doesn't say much about the other ones. Yeah, it did not go well. Yeah. But they tried. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, had that surprise attack uh, at the very beginning of April gone a little bit differently, uh, maybe that would have been the beginning of a uh, Marxist revolution in France. I don't know. Hmm. That's, you know, we, we don't speculate on this show generally, but it's, it is it is interesting to consider how close they came. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. For some reason, I thought the I had heard Paris Commune before, but I thought it was a several, like very small, like self-governing clubs, basically. No, it was the official government of the entire city. That's that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think I, I I think a lot of people have actually not heard of the Commune, and I'm I'm not entirely sure why because, oh my goodness, like yeah, <laughs> it, it was right there. Yeah. But I don't know. That's that's kind of that's kind of a thing that happens with revolutionary movements. It's kind of like uh, Martin Luther, where like there were so many people who tried for church reform before he came along. He was just the one that managed to get it to stick, and yeah. so he's the one that's famous. You know, it, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes almost made it doesn't count for the history books. Yeah. So, but anyways, I, after the Paris Commune was was crushed, I mean. Even though it stopped being a legitimate form of government uh, within within Paris, the idea of communism really spread across Europe. I mean, it, it had been yeah. kind of underlying things for a while, but actual communist parties started growing in in governments. Okay, um, you know, uh, it became. I don't necessarily want to say fashionable or even accepted to belong to uh, a communist organization or club. But, but they were popping up. They were popping up. They were fairly common. Mm-hmm. This is a time where if you are a, a, a worker, mm-hmm. you have been born too late to be protected by a guild. Yeah. Because that's part of the feudal system. Yeah. With the with the erasure of the feudal system, uh, you lost your protection. Yeah. And it's a time before unions really became prevalent. Yeah. So you have no protection from those. That was mostly... Within the early 20th century, correct? Yeah, very late 19th, uh, okay. early 20th century unions started yeah. becoming more prevalent. In large part, thanks to uh, the communist parties that were popping up here. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was something created called the International Working Men's Association. There are a few of them, actually. Uh, the first one was begun in 1866 by uh, Marx and Engels. Isn't that like a contradiction to Marx's own teachings though that that a union is is just a half measure Mm, yes however communism also recognized that change doesn't happen overnight and was willing to so i guess the thing that i would i would would point to with unions is that unions don't set worker conditions on the owner's terms unions are a form of giving workers cohesion and bargaining power collectively mm-hmm. and in the minds of the people who are forming these unions uh giving proportional power to the workers when bargaining with the owners okay which isn't what marx and engels were arguing against with bourgeois socialism yeah bourgeois so- socialism is the idea that 
the owners are giving little bits of things here and there to keep workers placated. Yeah. For the workers to organize mm-hmm. and try and set terms themselves, just try and set their own terms. Yeah. That's fully in line with communist thinking. In fact, communists in, in the in the manifesto, it specifically says that they support any revolutionary movement that's uh, that's aligned with the workers' interests. Okay. Forming a union is perfectly within the path to a perfect society that is uh, that's envisioned by communists. No, it's not there. Yes, it is a good step because unions are a way to create conscious communists. Okay. Right? It, it opens workers' eyes to the power that they have. Yeah. So, and, and therefore it is a revolutionary, a revolutionary tool, even if it is a half measure. Okay. Some of this stuff in terms of like pal- balance of power does get a little bit, yeah. Every once in a while it feels like you're doing some macrobatics to kind of cram it into the, the ideology. Yeah. I, I understand how you can kind of cock an eyebrow at it a little bit and go, eh, okay, if you say so. But yeah, the other thing to remember is that this is a, this is at its heart a philosophy as much as there's as as much as it's rooted in observation of history yeah there is a point at which someone is making the assertion that this is a thing that's likely to happen and here are the you know here here are the the logical assertions that get you to that point okay you know what i mean yeah am i surprised that things don't work out exactly as as he predicts (laughs) no of course not that that would be that would be amazing frankly yeah uh yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. I suppose I'm starting to ramble, but but the the fact of the matter is that it was communist uh, organizations that were suggesting unions in the first place. Yeah, uh, anything to improve the plight of the working man was considered uh, well within line with their their views. Okay, the the most powerful version, the uh, the the second, well, they just called it the Second International. But again, standing for International Working Men's Association, yep. uh, formed in 1889, was uh, an association of communists from over 20 countries. Okay, um, that would have meetings, you know, trade letters, all of this stuff. There was a there was a newsletter within the the association. Um, yeah, these are the people who founded International Workers Day. These are the people who founded inter- founded International Women's Day. Yeah, this is the organization that pushed the campaign for the eight hour workday. Yeah, a lot of the protections that we have as workers today mm-hmm. stem from this communist organization yeah these parties would sometimes be you know the political parties or even the the clubs themselves would sometimes be banned sometimes be outlawed by different countries yeah um sometimes merely socially frowned upon yeah but you know by by the 1880s communism was such a strong political force that you really couldn't deny that it was there and it was you know it was suppressed obviously for for obvious reasons one of its core tenets is overthrowing the current uh establishment yeah but it was there and it was it it was throughout europe and it seemed strongest in the places that marx talked about it being strongest for example germany yeah and so naturally the next step in our story is going to be all about how one of the least industrialized least urbanized countries in Europe, <laughs> is going to be the first one to have a true communist revolution. And so I think we're going to take a quick break before we yep. just zip right through the Russian Revolution, and we'll be back shortly.
right, we're back on HI101 here with Ethan Blusky. Hello. And uh, on to the final stretch with communism. Yay. And apparently the final stretch is the entire 20th century. <laughs> oh, good. We're going to try and focus a little bit more on ideology than like specific events. We'll obviously hit a few, but yeah, I think the contrast between communists, uh, communism and communist states versus uh, Western capitalist states is really what's most interesting and, and maybe most relevant to what mm-hmm. we've been talking about so far uh that i yeah i don't think i want to get into what happened which year of the russian revolution necessarily yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like most countries at this point in time russia did have a communist movement within it it's just that russia didn't really make sense it didn't match the model that that marx and engels had talked about for it wasn't ideal yeah for those circumstances i mean they were pointing to countries with a significant urban population Mm -hmm. uh they were pointing to countries that were heavily uh industrialized you know russia was neither of these things russia was something like 12 percent of their population were in cities in 1917 when the when the revolution occurred wow (laughs) like like just think about like 88 percent of them were in like essentially no peasants yeah I, I like that. That's the that's the crazy thing. They they had only uh, abolished serfdom, fifty years before this. Wow, <laughs> like I, it's hard to, I don't know. It's it's hard to imagine. I, I I imagine if if Marx had lived to see it, I'm sure he would have been just blown away that Russia was the first place that this happened. No, no, stop. This isn't how, this isn't how it's supposed to go. <laughs> uh, he Russia had been filled with unrest. Yeah. It had not been a, a happy country for, well, ever. I was going to say for a long time, but like, ever. Russia's just, yeah. It's just had bad luck in a lot of ways. Yeah. Sometimes it does it to itself when you look at the history. <laughs> a lot of times it's just a victim of circumstance. Yeah. And, you know, it had had another re- revolution in 1905 yep. that a lot of people don't know about where, you know, losing the Russo Japanese War caused a lot of tensions to kind of bubble to the surface and and there were some social reforms put in place at that point Uh, losing wars is a very common time to see uh revolutions occur yeah because uh it's a it's a reason to take ideas that kind of have been like nagging at you a little bit Mm -hmm. and it kind of gives them something to focus that negativity on yeah it's the it's the dust center of that snowflake it's like when it's like when somebody loses a championship sports game and then all the fans go out and riot (laughs) perfect it's kind of like that except usually with guns (laughs) looking at you vancouver (laughs) um anyways (laughs) yeah so there had been a russian social democratic labor party which is what they had to call their communist party to not all get arrested okay uh-huh and there'd been a bit of a split in the party between two of their main leaders, Vladimir Lenin, yep. who led the Bolshevik party, and uh, Julius Martov, who led the, the Menshevik party. The Mensheviks? Okay. Yeah. And oddly enough, Bolshevik means majority and Mensheviks means minority, <laughs> even though when they were named, the Bolsheviks were in the minority, but they named themselves that to sound like they had more support. Okay. Call Lenin what you will, he was not an unintelligent man. Yeah. He was very bright. Yeah. Uh, he also had a keen sense of how to relate to a population that was 88% two generations removed serfs. <laughs> Which is not an easy thing to do. I mean, we, no. we, we make fun a little bit, but I mean, these are these are uneducated, these are uneducated people. Yeah. A lot of them are, are completely illiterate. 
Yeah. The, the literacy rate in, in Russia was abysmal. And he had to find a way to uh, clearly, succinctly, and briefly communicate a lot of very complex ideas to these people because he truly believed that communism would be good for Russia. Yeah. He just had to explain to people what communism was and why it would, why it would be good for them. Now, how did he get that word out? Oh, was like radio fairly common there? Largely by traveling to major centers or having like people like representatives travel to major centers. Huh. Because no matter what, a revolution is still going to stem from the urban population because that's the place that you can get enough people together to form any sort of force. Yeah. Um, that's always been the case. Okay. Apple box speech, vod- vodka box speeches. <laughs> And, and I mean, R- Russia had also just recently had their rail system significantly upgraded. Yeah. So he could actually get around to these places. Yeah. But I mean, we're, we're jumping ahead a little bit because when Tsar Nicholas II was overthrown in in, uh, in February of 1917, mm-hmm. he wasn't replaced by a communist government. No. A lot of people don't realize this, but there were actually two revolutions in 1917. The Russian yeah. Revolution is two revolutions. Yes. And there was actually an interim government that was put into place after Nicholas II was deposed. Was it a republic? Yes. Okay. It just did not last very long at all. Nope. This republic would have... No, 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 I hate saying stuff like that. This republic might have been fine if they had done the main thing that people wanted a new government to do. Namely, end Russian participation in the First World War. Okay, yeah. Russians were not doing well. A lot nope. of them were dying. Yeah. They were tired. They were just tired of fighting. And 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 they wanted it to they, they wanted it to be over. So if the Republic had uh ended their participation in the war, yeah. um maybe people would have been more forgiving towards them. Yeah. As it was, they decided to continue participation in the war, which yeah, probably not. Yeah, hindsight 2020, etc. Yeah. After this republic was established, Lenin comes back into the country because he's been in exile. And he comes back in and he starts sp- spreading the news and saying, listen, you guys, this republic sucks. I've got a better way. Yeah. And he summed it up with three words. Peace, land, bread. Perfect. I'll end the war. I will make sure that there is enough farmable land for everyone. Yeah. Uh, the insinuation behind this being, I will redistribute the the massive amounts of land good land that is under the control of the old aristocracy yeah and give access to everyone yeah and bread there's been a famine i've got a plan for how we're gonna get out of this famine it's mainly gonna involve the first two things yeah but hey you won't be be hungry anymore and everyone's like yeah i hate being hungry this guy's great (laughs) it's it's a brilliant campaign yeah i like i it's it's uh, sometimes you see something that's just so simple and so well constructed that it's just like you you have to respect it whether or not you agree with it yeah and yeah what he's talking about is doing these things through communist means like yes he's he's you know he's creating peace so that he can if he can affect change at home yeah he's going to create this land by taking all of this land from older aristocrats yeah and redistributing it between all russian citizens yeah which is a very communist move uh-huh. the bread initiative is partially going to be through uh an issue through a, a policy of collective farming yeah. which basically means you set up a farm a whole bunch of people work on that farm no one owns the farm and everything from the farm goes to the government for you know making into the into food to give to all citizens yeah 
Lenin wouldn't do a whole lot towards uh, implementing collective farming. That was more of a Stalinist move. Yeah, that was later. But that was his eventual goal. I mean, this is, again, communism in stages, right? Mm -hmm. Lenin was still looking at keeping a lot of fairly capitalist things in place, at least for the meantime. Yeah. Really, first what he wanted to do was get a, a government established. See, Lenin was also a vanguard. And that was the hallmark of the split between the Bolsheviks and Mensheviks. I just threw out there that they split off, right? Yeah. The Bolsheviks were vanguards. The, Men the Mensheviks believed that revolution would happen naturally and that uh, inciting violent rebellion just held the potential to alienate others. Okay. That the revolution would come in its own due time. Yeah. And when it did, it would happen naturally and positively in a way that would make others want to join. Okay. And, you know, Lenin being a vanguard is saying, uh, no, we have to make our own revolution. Yeah. But he managed to convince the vast majority of Russians that this was the case. The Bolshevik party won uh, massive support in the government. Yeah. Um, and they, sorry, overthrew the, the current republic and uh, took control of the, of the the government of the country. In October? This was the October Revolution? Correct. Yeah. And keep in mind that these are both, both of those months are in the, um, the old Julian calendar, which was still in use in Russia because of its uh, uh, Orthodox Christianity. Okay. Um, they'd switch to the Julian calendar after this revolution. Okay. But yeah, the, the October revolution took place in November on our system, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. Yep. It's, and well, the 1905 was the December revolution, right? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Just, just checking. Yep. So the first thing Lenin does is sign what's known as the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, okay. um, which takes Russia out of the war at great cost to russia but it was a treaty signed by germany that basically said okay we're done yeah and so there's there's number one off of his list checked off and people love this yeah that being said even though they're out of the first world war um the october revolution leads to like five years straight of civil war within russia <laughs> because people don't just go okay i guess we're communists now and like yeah. everybody's instantly on board that's not how that works no um, so there's a war with, uh, the white Russians, right? The <laughs> that's actually, yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely right. Um, who are former, um, nobility basically yeah. in, uh, Russian society and they have the most to lose. They're the one having the land taking, taken from them. Yeah. They're fighting against the, the government. There are those who just don't support communism that are fighting against the government. Yeah. And there are a number of, uh, nations internationally that get involved, uh, supporting the white Russians Okay. that, uh, you know, that prolong this experience including the united states okay I, I mean there there were basically military units that world war one ended and they sent them over to russia to help uh you know that's the that's the time frame that we're talking about here yeah and yeah you could say this bred a little bit of resentment <laughs> uh with russians uh because they're, they're kind of looking at this going like well this is russian business like leave us alone kind of thing but it's also kind of the first suggestion of what would become the the, the cold war right like this yeah. idea that mm, we can't let communism become a thing because if it's a thing it's gonna spread yeah i mean they, they reversed that position later after during and after world war ii correct when they were allies yes but that was a that was a that was a friendship of necessity okay i mean i mean I, i've i've seen propaganda from after from after world war ii but before the, the real first stirrings of the cold war that's where, a very narrow window that yeah where the americans were promoting communism uh i mean those were being promoted by 
uh, members of the American Communist Party and not by the United States government necessarily. Okay. Which was an absolute, which was absolutely a thing. There were members of the Communist Party in the United States, which yeah, is yeah, yeah. The, where the whole McCarthyism trial comes from. Yeah. You could be a member of the Communist Party. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're skipping over a couple of things to, to get to the, after the World War II stuff. Yeah. The 1905 reforms that had, uh, that we talked about that led to some improvements in worker relationships. Okay. Uh, had led to the create cre- uh, the creation of something called uh, a Soviet, which is a work- workers' council. Okay, it was kind of a unit of local government that would be similar to like union leadership. Okay, but that's where the the word Soviet comes from. Okay, in 1919, Russia creates the Third International, but it's known as the the Communist International Workingmen's Association. Okay, so it's uh, abbreviated to Comintern. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Comintern before. No, it's like. At this point, it's a, a finally like a state-sponsored international. Okay. So whereas the second one was kind of a loose affiliation that fell apart during the the First World War because the 20-plus ca- uh, countries that made it up, rather than like committing to their idea of like international brotherhood and all that, yeah. basically just aligned with whatever country they were from, right? Yeah. It's kind of hard to keep stuff like that up through a war. Yeah. So with the creation of the third one, this was at least sponsored by Russia and they could kind of like maintain the integrity of it. And they saw it as uh, their duty to kind of spread the word about communism internationally. Okay. Again, vanguard system. Yep. With the Bolsheviks. They're trying to keep this whole revolution going. Yeah. One country down, a whole bunch more to go. Yeah. They attempted to foment revolt in Germany, but those revolts were suppressed basically as soon as they sprang up. Yeah. Everybody was watching Germany pretty closely at that point. Well, that's the thing. They actually kind of weren't. As long as they were making repayments or uh, like restitution, they, they didn't really care that much. And, and Germany was trying to like struggle through to figure out how to rebuild itself out of the war. Oh, which yeah. is why they kind of saw that, that, it as that's, you, yeah, that's right. You might be thinking of the post World War II era where they kind of divvied up the country a little bit. Yeah, to some no, extent. No, I, I remember now like Jazz era Berlin. Yeah. Anything goes. Very, very, yeah. Because you'd well, think you'd think in that case that some of those revolts might have worked a bit better. I think the problem there is that communism was seen as so much of an enemy to the government that was put in place directly after the war, which is uh, it, it's called the Weimar Republic. Yeah, um, it's a very strongly like Republican party, and it saw communism as almost anarchist system which it wasn't actually communism and anarchism are are very different Mm -hmm. things but when you're a republic they look very similar because both involve your overthrow (laughs) um (laughs) yeah yeah germany was very concerned about not creating any more waves because they just had a lot of very severe punishments handed down to them and they did not want to continue that theme um so within that within that republic it tended towards the more conservative if only to make sure that Germany didn't raise any red flags anywhere else. Mm-hmm. So, no, those revolts were put down quite quickly. Okay. That being said, Russia did invade Mongolia, uh, for example, uh, in 1921 uh, to protect it from, at that point in time, Republican China. Okay. Uh, in 1919, uh, Hungary went through its own rebellion. Yeah. Uh, revolution, I should say, and they adopted a Leninist model and so kind of joined up with uh, Russia diplomatically speaking because they aligned ideologically okay and so you know after these few countries started aligning with russia they renamed the entire organization to the union of soviet socialist republics the ussr yeah which we also call the soviet union for convenience sake yeah uh in 1922 
again the the name Soviet coming from the, the these workers councils. So they saw less. It was it was less about uh, an international uh, relationship, and it was more about uh, a network, uh, almost a federation of various workers councils that were coming together to form the government. Okay, at least through the uh, the rhetoric of of the whole thing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lenin was at this point not terribly well he ended up resigning from leadership in 1924 okay uh due to health problems and would die a few years later this is the this is the guy that's like mummified in red square yeah i don't know if you've ever looked into pictures of this yeah it's kind of weird how a guy who died in 1927 oh we're creeping up on 100 years oh boy it's 89 (laughs) this year (laughs) he just still looks like a dude chilling isn't stalin mummified next to him I can't remember if they mummified him and put him on display. Lenin is still on display. I don't believe yeah. it's... I, I I can't remember if Stalin was on display for a time or not. Uh, you may be right, though. I also kind of wonder why they took him down. If it was the whole war crimes thing, or if it was just like they... You know, they, at this point, are are more proud of Leninism than they were of Stalinism. Yeah. Now, what was Stalin's background? Was he... Like he was, lower class or was yes. he one of the upper class? No, he was lower class. He was Georgian. So he wasn't even true Russian. Yeah. People made fun of his accent. <laughs> uh, have you ever seen the picture of a young Stalin? Yeah. With the, with the swept hair and the... Weirdly handsome. The, 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 the scarf and the... Oh. Yeah, it, it is kind of weird. Yeah, he was, he was a... I, I mean, he was a young revolutionary. He was, a, he was an idealist. Yeah. Um, he was not from a, a privileged background. And was was a, a close disciple of Lenin's. Um, I mean, there were still factions within the, the the Bolsheviks even at the the time that Lenin had kind of solidified power after the after the the, the civil wars. Mm-hmm. Right. The the civil wars ended in 1922 as well. So okay, it, basically the civil war ending in 1922, coinciding with kind of the addition of these couple extra nations, mm-hmm. are what convinced them to to rebrand themselves basically as the USSR. Yeah everything's coming up soviet yeah essentially yeah so stalin takes over in 1924 oh sorry there's there's one other person that we haven't really talked about and that's trotsky yeah i i was kind of breezing over trotsky a little bit mostly because this was a a further split within the the bolshevik party but yeah we can talk about him briefly yeah i just know that trotsky was uh incredibly important to the revolution as well and like a close maybe not friend but colleague of of lenin Sure. And he eventually got exiled, right? And he was... He did. Well, He, he was, was assassinated in... In Mexico. In Mexico. Yeah. Uh, he was actually originally a Menshevik, and he uh, he crossed the party line. Oh, and, okay. And the interesting thing is he, he, almost, he almost went too far the other way for Lenin's taste, or for Stalin's taste specifically. When, when Stalin took over, because Trotsky is more of a, an, an opponent of Stalin than he is of Lenin. Okay. Um, when Stalin took over, he believed in something called socialism in one country, which was let's set up Russia to be awesome. Okay. And if Russia is awesome, it will serve as a model to the entire world. And then socialism will spread uh, from there. Okay. From- he essentially abandoned the the vanguard theory. Okay. But it, I, I mean, you can see how that, that thinking kind of follows, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. If, if Russia is a worker's utopia mm-hmm. and everywhere else sucks, you don't, need to force it on them because the workers in those countries will see you as uh as an example it will create conscious communists who will rise up within their own countries to to uh encourage the entire world to eventually join in that so he is almost more menshevik than bolshevik stalin is yes yeah 
Whereas Trotsky, who used to be a Menshevik, is now like a hardcore Bolshevik in that he's going like, what, what are you guys doing? We won Russia. Let's keep going. Okay. Like we won Russia. Now we've got Mongolia. Now we've got like the, the, everything's falling into place. Yeah. Like, why are we stopping? Yeah. In realpolitik terms, Stalin yeah. was probably right in that Russia may have no longer been in civil war, but they weren't in great shape. Mm hmm. And it was probably a very good idea to focus at home. <laughs> Trotsky was an idealist. Yeah. He was, I, I mean, that happens sometimes when people change their ideology drastically. They kind of almost swing too far the other way. Yeah. He did that. He believed that Stalin had abandoned true Marxism-Leninism okay. uh, by stopping. And so he was eventually exiled. I mean, that was a that was a hallmark of Stalinism was... During the 1930s, he, he had something called the Great Purge. He waited until Lenin was dead, but he basically purged the entire country of anyone who disagreed with him. Yeah. Either exiling them internationally or sending them to work camps in Siberia. Yay. Uh, the gulags. Gulags. Were not, yeah, they were not a pleasant place to be. He also uh, worked at kind of abandoning some of the stopgap measures that Lenin had allowed to stay in place, uh, economically speaking. He tried to get rid of as many as many capitalist practices as he could. Okay. He's the one that really forced collectivized farming. Yeah. Like like going in and and strong arming people into accepting collectivized farming, not just taking non-farmed land and turning it into collective farms. Okay. It was a matter of going in find finding 10 people who have farms next to each other telling them this is a collective farm now. Okay. You know, and and you all work on it and no you don't get to keep any of it. It goes to the state. Yeah. Uh, he was also kind of instrumental in the in the subjugation of of Ukraine, and kind of turning that into the uh, basically the the farm for all of Russia or for all of the USSR, I should say. The breadbasket. The breadbasket, exactly. He was also a big proponent of uh, industrialization at a rapid rapid pace. He realized that communism doesn't actually work that well in an agrarian society, <laughs> and so you need to actually have some sort of industry, yeah, uh, to you know produce. Uh, seeing as that is kind of a, a major tenet of, of communism is having some means of production to own. Yeah. Uh, so he forced uh, rapid uh, expansion into uh, the industrial sector. He uh, encouraged urbanization mm -hmm. um, all rather brutally. I mean, he was not futzing around. He was, yeah. he was going for this. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I don't know. He's an interesting guy insofar as a horrible genocidal dictator can be. Yeah. But I, I I find I don't know he he's he's similar he's more similar to Mao than either Stalin or Mao would like to admit in that they both committed grave atrocities in the name of being like like strong believers in a cause yeah obviously that doesn't forgive anything but it is interesting to see how consistent Stalin's drive is with that belief in an ideology yeah so yeah and I mean. Stalinism would go on to kind of uh, inform communism for for Russia for the remainder of the the life of the USSR. Yeah. Um, so we'll kind of leave the specifics of of like internal policies with the USSR there, uh, other than to say that you know at this point they're cutting off trade ties with the West. Yeah. You know relationships are cooling a little bit. We'll get to the Cold War shortly. Mm -hmm. I, I do want to run over China quick before we do the rest yeah, of the I was Cold War. Say. Um, but you know. He's, he's really the point at which he took Russia and went from, hey, we're in the middle of a communist revolution to like, no, we're actually a communist society and we're going to act like one now. 
and okay. really shut things down. Yeah. So, and and it, it moved to so, uh, social things too, things like uh, uh, oppression of the the Russian Orthodox Church. Yep. Again, consistent with that uh, atheistic nature of uh, uh, of communism, which made it, it was one of the reasons that it was so. Uh, objectionable to so much of the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he tried to implement as much Marxist doctrine in Russia as he could. China was, uh, yeah, it's it's a funny thing in China as well. I, I mean, China is uh, a very, like, it has such a long imperial history. A very, very long one, and one that I wish I knew a little bit more about than I do. Yeah. I've got a couple of books I need to get around to on that <laughs> one. But China was a, a an, an empire up until 1922, and they you know they go through this massive social upheaval yep. uh you know they they abandon the the empire they switch to a republican system yep. which is relatively short lived because that empire goes through basically all of the things that china goes through or sorry that republic goes through all of the things that china goes through in the second world war yeah and it doesn't end up being very effective at ruling china no mao comes along you know agitating for communist change yeah and ends up running a very like convincing like a very popular movement against the republican government yeah the long march which is the the sort of the it it, it sounds it sounds so mythical that like i i have a hard time believing it happened exactly as they say it did there's so much evidence that it did but yeah like basically he started out in one section of china and he started marching his army through and people just rushed in to join him like some sort of like weird pied piper yeah and and he just like kept gaining followers along the way i've, and, I've heard stories too and it's and it's just it almost like it doesn't sound real but yeah. it is it's a thing that happened um and by the time he's marching on beijing he's got this massive force of completely untrained people yeah but just overwhelming numbers and end up completely obliterating the republican army yeah and like to the point that they drive them off of mainland china like uh, taiwan today is all that's left of the uh, the Republic of the government. actual Republic of China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that Republican government took took uh, residents in exile on Taiwan, and that's the reason that China today won't recognize them. Yeah, is because they're the last holdouts of that old government that they overthrew. Yeah, they initially, and, and this is 1949, by the way, that he's that he's overthrowing uh, Chiang Kai Shek. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, the ties between China and the USSR are very strong. Uh, they're doing this whole like international brotherhood hey, thing. Hey, we're brothers in arms. Yeah, yeah, and 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 this idea that all communist countries should ideally be you know working together. Yeah, uh, and that uh, you know inevitably like the lines of nationality will be erased and all of this stuff that Mao or that that Marx wrote about. Yeah, um, you know they're making it happen, except that they really didn't agree. Like Mao believed that Stalinism had like fundamentally betrayed like the most important ideas of Marxism Leninism in terms of the way that, you know, he forced uh, certain things to come about in, in, uh, in communist thought, the way he had forced uh, industrialization. He saw that as essentially doing the exact thing that uh, the bourgeoisie had been doing all of these years, except in the name of communism. Okay. He also had major issues with the idea of Stalin retaining such a massive like hold on power. Okay. Because Ideally, in the vanguard system, the vanguard helps the revolution occur and then steps and then away. Fades away, yeah. Uh, and the vanguard was not fading. <laughs> like they, they they disagreed on so many of these like nuances about Marxism mm-hmm. that you know eventually they just like couldn't really get along. And by 1960, they like even even uh, diplomatic ties between them had essentially broken down. Yeah. 
and the the two forms of communism like went in very different directions from there yeah chinese communism took a very and this isn't surprising but took a very chinese direction like it's the 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 version of communism that works best for Chinese society, for Chinese culture, hmm. for Chinese political realities, yeah. and, and that's no different than what happened in Russia, right? Like, I mean, each each of these each of these governments is going to adapt communism to uh, to their own country and make it work in the way that works best for them. Because again, it wasn't a blueprint that that uh, Marx was putting out; it was a social observation. Yeah, and he he projected it one step further, and specifically for highly developed western yeah countries well yeah he was he was looking and he was russia looking and china at, you know, are neither of those yeah I, I, yeah i mean there, there's the there is the argument that could be made that russia is a, a western country but but it's also an eastern country it's kind of both yeah in, in a lot of ways well, and i think so people big, forget about that it's really both yeah it it, it definitely has a, a foot in both pools I, I i guess this brings us to the cold war and and the relationship between <laughs> communism and the west is i mean to call it rocky is an understatement yeah it really begins. I, there, there are so many things that you can point to for the beginning of the Cold War that it's it's kind of a futile effort. Most people will tell you that it began 1947 to 1949, after the Second World War, uh, when the West and uh, the USSR were allies, basically because they needed to be. Yeah, you know they still didn't really trust the USSR. No, and relations between Stalin and the rest of the the Western world broke down quickly to the point that. Most of the military development that was done throughout the 40s was done assuming that the next major ground war would be in Germany, again, between the rest, the West and the USSR. Okay. It just seemed like that was the most likely thing that was going to happen. Obviously, though, the, the war didn't end up happening as a, as a ground war. That kind of prevented in a lot of ways by the uh, use of nuclear uh, arms uh, in as Japan at the end of World War yeah. II. Um, in fact, there have been people who have argued that the only reason nuclear bombs were used at Hiroshima and Nagasaki was to show the Russians that the Americans had them. Oh, it's a theory. Interesting. I, I, I don't I don't personally ascribe to that one, but it's been suggested that that is at least one of the many benefits to the American cause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in the biggest scare quotes, let's let's say one of the biggest reasons instead uh, that the bombs were used there. Yeah. So, I mean... And it, and it would have been prevented partially because of the uh, the split of Berlin as well, right? Yeah, I mean, the, Berlin was divided in into four sections, basically, um, after the war. Uh, British, uh, Britain, France, uh, United States, and USSR. But the, uh, the, the three that are not the USSR soon combined theirs. And, yeah. Yeah, the, there was the... It turned whole... into west and east germany yeah there was the whole split of germany which was part of this whole falling apart of, of diplomatic ties yeah uh, and the closing off of the of the east now when did russia get nukes about 1949 I'll double okay check that it was i believe it was 1949 though yeah uh, that... if it, it was either that or 1951 we'll find out which one it is in the notes <laughs> approximately 1950 plus or minus one year <laughs> <laughs> um yeah they, they figured it out pretty quickly yeah but I'm, I'm fairly confident on 1949 so yeah, I mean, there were there were only a few years in there where the United States had the bomb and the and the USSR didn't. Yeah. Um, and then you get into this, uh, well, the Cold War, where you have uh, nuclear pro- proliferation, both sides trying to build more bombs Big than the bombs. other side. Yeah. You have um, competitions of of military technology, military spending. Yeah. You have proxy, proxy wars, wars being fought. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this gets into something called the Truman Doctrine, which was containment. 
he said, okay, USSR is communist, nothing I can do about that, but I'll be damned if I let any other countries turn communist. Okay. He, well, because I mean, one of the major tenets of communism is we need to spread to other con- uh, countries. Yeah. So he knew that they wouldn't be satisfied with socialism in one country forever. Yeah. And he knew that communism was about overthrowing capitalist societies, you know, like the United States. Yeah. So he saw it as a direct national threat. On the other side of things, the communist nations saw capitalism as uh, one of the greatest evils of our time because it was about suppressing uh, the proletariat. Yeah. And uh, keeping the means of production in the hands of a few only. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, they're directly ideologically opposed. No (laughs) wonder they didn't play nicely. Yeah. Yeah, you get into Korea in 1950 where the two sides are playing off of each other, which, you know, ends in a ends in a stalemate creating north and south korea yeah uh north korea uh, uh adopting their own form of communism because you know the americans well the the entire un forces really supporting south uh korea were fighting korean forces yeah but they were essentially uh chinese communist backed korean forces okay. which were likely secretly uh supported by the ussr yeah because at that point they were still hanging out yeah they were still talking uh, you have Vietnam, which the tensions there began in 1955, and the United States lost Vietnam. Vietnam is currently a communist government. Oh, um, Vietnam is still a communist government? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Yep. Uh, you have Cuba in 1959, which stems back to uh, frustrations with uh, American imperialism in South America. Yeah. All of South America throughout the Cold War was just a back and forth. There's this, I, I mentioned it earlier, but um, South America has this tendency to be relatively socialist in like cultural leanings yeah they're far more open to the idea of things like uh state-sponsored education universal Mm health care things like that than uh, the united states traditionally has been yeah and the thing about an ideological cold war is that you can't allow anything that even seems a little like communism to thrive because that might be a foot in the door for actual communism okay and so they would try and crush those sorts of, of countries, or at the very least, they would not give any aid to socialist-leading countries. Yeah. And so that would actually have the exact opposite effect, where if anyone needed any international aid and they were anywhere close to socialist-leaning, they would probably have to turn to the Soviet Union for aid. Who would be like, here, have aid. Yeah. And then the communists look real good. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, probably about that time, the CIA will send somebody to install a military junta and uh yeah yay oh again so well, south america could use its own welcome to 70s afghanistan uh 80s but yeah that's that's uh 80s i thought it was the 70s it may have it may have begun in the 70s i could be wrong but yeah the, the this whole proxy war going back and forth got just just silly like each side is sponsoring yeah. conflicts over uh, all over the globe because they know that they can't fight each other directly because each yeah. has nuclear we- weapons that's a point of mutually assured destruction yeah uh so instead they try to gain influence all across the globe by sponsoring these small conflicts a lot of times sponsoring a side that they don't necessarily want in power yeah only because there are that that side is counter to this ideolo- uh, this ideology that they don't believe in yeah I mean, in general, the United States doesn't like military dictatorships. But in South America, there were a lot of times where they preferred uh, military dictatorships over... Uh, over a communist yeah. regime. Yeah. And and that's the funny thing is in uh, in South America, often they weren't really even communists. They were, they they were, were socialist at really, best. Yeah. 
They were countries that would not look out of, or they, they were, there were systems of government that would not look out of place in Europe today. Okay. For example. Yeah. But walks like a communist and talks like a communist. Yeah. So they put them down. And I mean, you know, again, the, the Cold War, the, the nuances of it get extremely complicated, but really what you've got is this, you know, this lockdown of uh, all these communist nations because... You know, on one hand, they don't actually want to trade with the West. On mm-hmm. the other hand, uh, the West doesn't want to trade with them. And there's this complete seal yeah. uh, formed, mostly due to the Truman Doctrine, yeah. around uh, the, the communist world. And it turns out that, at least under these conditions, with another superpower directly opposing you and, you know, everything else that you want to talk about in the mid to late, well, throughout the mid-20th century, yeah. communism doesn't hold up as well, or didn't hold up for the USSR, as well as capitalism held up for the United States. Yeah. They didn't do as well economically. Mm-hmm. Um, they, and, and I mean, I don't, I, I don't like pointing to that as an absolute failure of communism as a school of thought or as a system of government, mostly because number one, it wasn't really true communism. Yeah. It was closer to a dictatorship that was, you know, communist in name only, mm-hmm. um, like most communist governments have ended <laughs> up being. Yeah. But also because... I mean, if you isolate and embargo uh, uh, an economy, of course, it's not going to do well. If you force an economy into military spending just to keep up with you, yeah. of course, it's not going to do well. You know, those are those are stressful economic uh, uh, circumstances to be yeah. under. Or maybe it's just not a very good economy. I'm not sure. Like, it's, it's hard to separate out all of those causes. Yeah. What does matter is that it was eventually a failed system. It was um, tested under fire, but pretty much only fire. Yeah. Well, that's that's a really good way of putting it. That's a very, very good way of putting it. The other thing was, like, yeah, the, the Soviet Union was traditionally, you know, the government was very corrupt. Yeah. Like, extremely corrupt. Yeah. And so I think when people point to the Soviet Union and say, here's where Marxism fails, uh, no, I think that's where Stalinism fails. Yeah. I'm not sure that Marxism has ever really been truly tested on any sort of long time scale or any uh, or on a large enough scale to say for for certain yeah if it's impossible now there are a lot of good arguments against using it as a system of government yeah uh it's certainly not perfect no um but it's it yeah i i think that's a little bit unfair to the system (laughs) it's just as unfair as pointing to the united states and saying you know look how look how successful a a truly free capitalist state is when it's like no do you have any idea how many controls there are on the economy there (laughs) that is not that is not like pure capitalism. Yeah. Don't call it that. No. Um, neither of those are examples of the things that they purported to be. Yeah. Um, not not absolutely, at least. No. So anyways, the yeah, the Soviet Union falls out apart at the end of the 80s. You get Gorbachev in there who basically inherits a, a crumbling economy from his predecessors. Yeah. Institutes a couple of key uh, policies, uh, specifically glasnost, which means transparency, meaning like transparency of government. I, okay. I, let's get the corruption out of here. Let's quit it with the the bribery and the you know, all of that stuff, and uh, perestroika, which means restructuring. Yeah. Where he's going, like, okay, maybe it wouldn't be the end of the world if someone from Russia bought some blue jeans from the United States. Maybe we could work something out here. Maybe that's not the ultimate evil. Yeah. Now, the economic conditions at the point in time when these policies went in basically guaranteed the end of that economic system. Yeah. Which, I mean, to be fair, 
is something that communists in the 1930s were saying about the United States during the Great Depression when, you know, the USSR actually fared much better than the United States did because yeah. they weren't trading in the same markets. Yeah. They were saying, well, here's the fall of commun- or of capitalism right here. We're watching it happen. Yeah. And I bet there were uh, a, a fairly large number of people, probably more than would admit it later, uh, in the 1930s, you know, during the Dust Bowl that were going, uh, maybe... Maybe, maybe communism isn't so bad. Mm-hmm. You know, if you open up your, your media in the way that he did to a, a society that didn't have free media up until that point, and you do it during a time when the, uh, when the economy is at its worst, yeah, uh, your competition's going to look better. Yeah. That's just kind of how that works. Well, I mean, there, there are stories about, about Gorbachev visiting America, and even he didn't know how good it was. I believe there was, I, I believe the, the specific anecdote thing. that you're talking about is, this, yeah, the supermarket where he walked into a supermarket and went, like, are you kidding me? Like, this is available just to anyone? And then demanded that they take him to a different supermarket to make sure it wasn't just a, yeah. a North Korea-style setup. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Russia's never traditionally had a very good economy. Yeah. Uh, in fact, a lot, of the, a lot of the advances that happened in that economy were due to the isolationism. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with, with Gorbachev and, and opening things up, yeah, it wasn't long before the the communist system was more or less restructured to the point that it's it's no longer a communist system. The USSR, as a as a political body, was disbanded in 1991. Yeah, and and yeah, I, I mean that was that was the main force of communism in in kind of global politics. Of course, we still have Cuba today. We have China today. Yeah, uh, North Korea today. Vietnam. There are a number of communist nations. Yeah, there are still even some kind of weirdly bigoted uh, policies towards some of those nations i mean <laughs> the idea that obama uh, visiting cuba very recently was the first uh, american president to set foot there in 88 years is, is astounding i mean yeah uh, you know cuba's been closed to the united states since 1962 1960 yeah 1962 yeah that's that's insane cuba's never i mean we we breezed right over the cuban missile crisis which is essentially just a problem of communication and, and nuclear yeah. tension between uh, the United States and and the USSR, and goes to show you how terrified people were of having a communist nation in their backyard. The Cuban Missile Crisis was basically uh, all of their worst fears like confirmed, right? Yeah. Never mind the fact that the Americans had missiles all along the USSR border, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't fair when it was near the US, right? Yeah. So, yeah, anyways. Yeah, for Cuba to only recently be reopened to the United States is insane. It hasn't been a threat to the United States since the no. collapse of the Soviet Union and probably not since much longer before that. Yeah. N- meanwhile, China is a, a massive trading partner for the United States. And that's okay, I guess. It's, it's, it's a weird standard. <laughs> yeah. But I think it goes to show that since the collapse of the, the, the USSR, it's been a much less defining thing in a relationship between uh, Western countries and, and communist ones. Yeah. People have eased up a little bit on the on the dogma, I think. Yeah. And I think have a little bit better idea of what exactly communism is. Because it's not specifically about wanting to overthrow capitalism. It's not specifically about an atheistic society. It's not like there, there are there are aspects of that system that can be incorporated into a capitalist system. And this is what yeah. we call socialism today. Uh, synthesis. synthesis. Going back to the whole thing. Thesis, synthesis, synthesis. That's a really good point. I think I think in a lot of ways, communism has been uh, synthesized with uh, with capitalism in a lot of Western countries. Not mm-hmm. all of them. And, and not all to the same degree. But, I mean, just even the idea of a, a social safety net. Like, yeah. 
have have unemployment insurance. <laughs> like, also, also, why is everyone so salty about not having like or or not wanting healthcare paid for? Yeah, it's it's yeah, whatever. I it's I guess it's easier to feel just appalled as a Canadian having grown up in a country where it's never been an issue for me. Yeah, um, I don't understand why someone wouldn't want it, but hey, if you want to save some on your income tax, I guess go ahead. Yeah, hey, we're we're look, we're we're going down a bad path. We can talk about this all day. Um, the the fact of the matter is that I think I think with the collapse of the of the USSR, um, communism as a legitimate form of government has likely seen its day. Yeah, but like the time under the Soviet Union, I think what you're looking at there is less of a true uh, a true communist society and more of a, a military dictatorship. Uh, in the name of communism. Yeah. And it's really difficult to look at that stuff because you hear the stories about people waiting in line for for food mm-hmm. uh, allotments. And yes, that's partially because the system demands that rather than, you know, working for a wage and then using that wage at a grocery store to buy whatever you want, that uh, the government is providing that food for you. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's because of that, but it's also because the government's doing a really bad job of it. Largely yeah. because it's not concerned with it. It's concerned with fighting a, a, a proxy war somewhere in Africa with mm-hmm. the United States. So is that a failure? Eh. Technically, yeah. Idealistically, I'm not sure. Yeah. It's a hard, it's a hard one to, to figure out. So, yeah, that, that, that's communism. It's a very idealistic idea. It's, uh, it's a very attractive one, at, especially, yeah. especially when people are, are, are younger. It's it's attractive because it's nice. Yeah. Communism is nice. I think I think people kind of forgot that during the Cold War. It's maybe too nice for this world. Yeah. It would be nice if we could all just get along. Yeah. And no one exploit anybody else, please. That'd be nice. <laughs> and uh it, it would be it would be great if um society society could find a, a proper way of doling out resources and allocating uh people's labor and talents in just the exact perfect way that no one was ever wanting yeah we're not there yet and i don't know that communism is the is the way to do that yeah i don't i don't know if it's capable i i, I don't know now you get into questions of human nature this is a history podcast not a philosophy one that's not our purview we don't yeah. need to talk about that yeah so yeah i i mean in terms of in terms of the history of uh of communism yeah there's still communist countries but i i think I think as a as a major motivating force in world politics, yeah, uh, likely over in the form that we know it, at least for the time being, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's a that's a tour through the at least the philosophy of of, of communism <laughs> and, and its application uh, in a few in a few places in world history. Yeah, uh, what do you think? Yay! It's a little more straightforward than I think a lot of people realize. Oh yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be scary it doesn't have to be complicated no and and i think being just a little bit open to the ideas kind of makes you realize that it's not i don't think it's inherently evil no especially when you when you frame it that we haven't really truly had a an actual marxist communist country yeah and and, and to be and that most of them are a military dictatorship with well i mean look at the countries that are that are communist today yeah that tells you just about all you need to know about it. Any any country that that has to put in that they're a republic of something. <laughs> the, yeah, the Demo- the Democratic People's Republic of Korea is like not really democratic. Least, they, they not really so a many, republic. They say so many free things 
they say so many free things in that's in that name of a country yeah that you know they're compensating for something yeah but yeah i i mean as as an idea yeah not not that terrifying no 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 and especially because we've had so much synthesis with it since well yeah i mean since since the communist manifesto by marx has been written i think the thing to i think the thing to keep in mind is that and angles and sorry angles thank you Engels thanks you. I, I think the thing to remember is that the only reason that Marx warned against the bourgeois socialism is that it wouldn't result in communism. Yeah. Maybe maybe bourgeois uh, socialism is, is kind of okay. I, I don't know. Maybe it's not. And that's... I have no idea. I mean, idea. we are saying that from the point of view of a fairly bourgeois socialist... Nation? Just nation. in general? Yeah. yeah. Canada would fill those those shoes. So... Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I, like I said, I, I don't. I don't mean to say that Marxism is definitely uh, an answer. I'm not saying that it's definitely not. But I, I think if if anything was intended by doing this topic, it was to demystify it a little bit. Yeah. And and kind of point out that it's just a little bit different way of doing it. It's yeah. not uh, an inherently evil one, or or even an, an inherently uh, poor one. Yeah. Uh, it is what it is. So uh, I think we'll leave it there. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really oh, enjoyed no having you. Thanks for having me. Communism is beginning to look outdated. It's an idea born out of the Industrial Revolution, and in a world moving more and more quickly away from the society that gave birth to it, the specifics of the manifesto seem highly unlikely today. Yet it had a massive impact on the last 150 years, and understanding what it truly was, not just the negative propaganda, but also the real aspirations of those who supported it, is crucial to understanding huge pieces of that time period. Next time on HI101, we'll be talking about the Italian Renaissance. That episode will be up on May 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI 101.